This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and we have in our New York studio three people. We have our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. We have our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And in from the coast, we have our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. I'm back from vacation. Thank you all for letting me escape. I appreciate your generosity in uh, letting me run away for a minute. But we have a lot to talk about now that we're back in. We've got a bunch of new releases, and we're also going to start verging into talking about television as Emmy season approaches. To kick things off, we wanted to look back a little bit to last weekend. Uh, We didn't really get into Ready Player One, which was the big box office winner of the weekend. It's the new Steven Spielberg movie. It is, uh, by all means, some level of an event, even if it isn't as huge as Spielberg's movies have been in the past. Uh, Joanna, you talked about it briefly from seeing it at South by Richard you managed to see it and I think you were a fan right yeah I liked it um I saw it as a civilian would uh, in, in that I paid for a movie ticket I got popcorn and soda sat what with a concept. sat with the hoi polloi yeah. and, you know in one of those reclining seats um yeah I enjoyed it I mean I think that a lot of the discourse on Twitter had been so negative about it from like film Twitter people because you know it's nostalgia and it's like why why do we need to like have a whole movie that celebrates geek culture when everything is geek culture now and you know um, so I and I understand those criticisms and I and I and I see them in the movie but like I th- I thought like it has great action scenes and it, and it's also a really interesting commentary made by Spielberg about Spielberg kind of movies like 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 event tent pole blockbuster movies and there's a little bit of regret in it I think about that he's like considering his legacy and watching people kind of take ownership of these films that he's made and I don't know I, I thought there was a psychological depth to the movie that like if you infer it uh, was there which I thought was cool if you put that on it I agree with you and wish the movie had space to go deeper into that do you know what I mean like if that's the case then Mark Rylance his character Halliday is playing like the Spielberg avatar and I wish that the film had had room the stuff with Mark Rylance I thought was the most interesting stuff and that's not what like the most people are there for that movie and um, if they had had space to go deeper into that um, I think I would have liked the movie more but Spielberg said sort of defiantly at South by Southwest and then again at the LA premiere that this is a movie not a film and so Ugh, like yeah just let me say <laughs> yuck and so that like that to me like set it up as something where he's like don't overthink this but like I would prefer to overthink it I would prefer to have Richard's approach to it which is like wondering what kind of commentary it's making does that make sense yeah yeah I mean I think also like um there's a I don't know did you see critique of like like that culture in there or or is it just pure celebration because I couldn't really decide where to fall on that because if it's just pure celebration of a culture that like 
kind of did gradually lead to Gamergate and all this kind of like terrible stuff. Um, and I think that's what was keeping a lot of people away from the movie was like, I don't need to see that celebrated. But do you think that it's critical of it at all? I think it does not engage in some of the realities of fandom as it exists today in terms of like Gamergate or like the fa- I call them the fanboy wars over like DC movies or Star Wars movies right. and stuff like that. Like what that kind of fandom that both Ernie Klein wrote about in the book and Spielberg helped spawn with blockbuster culture in the first place. Um, it's changed so much. And for the film to not grapple with it makes me feel like it's not grappling with anything, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's fair. So this movie had the biggest opening of a Spielberg movie since Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which somehow was already 10 years ago. Um, By all indications, the next movie he's going to make is another Indiana Jones movie. Does this seem like it's any kind of turning point for Spielberg or just kind of like he's going to continue doing his own thing, going between his big movies and his, uh, you know, the post type things? Um, I mean, I'm just kind of curious where he goes next after this. Well, this is a tricky one because, like, Ready Player One, I guess, in some senses is like, yeah, like, we're ba- we're back to, like, blockbuster Spielberg. But it's also the kind of this, like, techno- technological experiment with it's a lot of mocap and stuff like that. So it doesn't feel quite the blueprint of a traditional, you know, big Spielberg movie. So I don't really know where he's going with this one. It's kind of an oddity. Um, but, yeah, it has been a while since he's had, like, a big, big movie. So um, that is sort of I-, I wonder if he almost made this to kind of prove to himself or to the world that he could still do it. And it seems to be paying yeah. off. How does it compare to AI, artificial intelligence? Oh, is it a spiritual no. air? No, <laughs> no. sadly no. So it's no. not no. Kubrickian in any are way? You, are you an AI fan? I kind of am. Yeah. 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 I love that movie. And I think when I, I mean, when I read what I read of Redder Player One, which was not a lot because I actually couldn't get through it, um, it felt to me like cheap uh, snow crash. And this is a conversation that Joanna and I have had and to the point where Joanna actually ended up interviewing Neil Stevenson who wrote Snow Crash basically based on that conversation. But maybe, I guess maybe I should accept that maybe Ready Player One is more realistic than Snow Crash because it actually does present the gamer world and all of its sort of appalling uh, smells like farts and old couches and Cheetos way. I don't know. I haven't seen it and I don't really want to see it. But so I guess I'm just pontificating for no reason. But like, is it, I don't know. Well, the tell thing, me something. Yeah, more. let me tell you something more, mm-hmm, which is that mm-hmm. the thing that Snow Crash does, that that Neil Stevenson book does, that is so interesting, is talk about the way in which having a, an avatar of yourself messes with your psychology and messes with society when you can look like anything. Right. And, that's and just when we're living in that world and yeah. that was very prescient. Yeah. And we're, we're like rapidly approaching that. Yeah. If not already there in various ways. I was talking about this elsewhere. Like just, just even like presenting the best selfie of yourself online is part of avataring yourself. Right. And that is not something that Ready Player One with, grapples with at all. Even with Lena Waithe's character who's playing a character who's so different. Like Lena Waithe, I actually genuinely think is the best part of the movie next to Mark Rylance. But like her, this way in which her avatar is so different, you know, she is, and this is from the book too, you know, she's like, she's a black woman. I don't know if it addresses her sexuality at all. In the book, she's a lesbian. And then in the gaming world, she presents as like hyper-masculine, I mean, white-ish, she's an orc, I don't know. But like, you know, and and it does not even (laughs) come close to thinking about that disparity and what that means. That movie doesn't. You know what I mean? No, it's just like a little reveal and then it's past. Yeah. The, the book actually does like sit down with that for a second and like right. thinks about like, and it doesn't really go into like why our sort of the baseline assumption is that it's like a white dude like behind the avatar. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't think that this movie is not concerned really with any sort of like... 
yeah. higher thought or politics, you know. Or right. Whatever. It wants to be fun. It wants to be a fun and film. I think it it's is. a movie. It's a yeah. movie. It's a movie, not a film. Okay. It's a movie. <laughs> I, 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 I'll, I'll say I, I, I cried at a point toward the end. When did it, you? In a Rylance scene. Oh, okay. Because he's just so That's fair. good and weird. And Bill Berg and Rylance, how are you not going to cry? You know, I cried during the BFG, so I'm here with you. I slept during the BFG. <laughs> <laughs> I would have cried had I been awake. <laughs> All right. Joanna, so you wrote about Ready Player One at South By and talked about kind of the very geek-friendly vibe of its premiere. And from South By, you also wrote about A Quiet Place, which is out this week. Um, and I was remembering us kind of kicking ourselves for last year not discussing Get Out as an early-in-the-year horror movie that was an Oscar contender. Uh, so are we avoiding sleeping on A Quiet Place by talking about it now? Or is it a good horror movie that isn't going to be quite Get Out size? It is definitely not going to be Get Out size. Like, no way. Because it just doesn't – I liked it. I liked it a lot. And it is similar to Get Out in that it's like – I think we talked about this elsewhere that it's like a TV comedian turn director turning in a very like uh, slick, I would say, horror film. Um, And certainly the fact that John Krasinski wrote, co-wrote and directed and stars in and cast his wife as his on-screen wife and has a lot to do with the anxieties of raising children in this world. And they are raising children in this world. Like there's certainly things he's saying about himself and his own family in there. I can see that. But he's not making a broader social commentary the way that Get Out did. And that's why I don't think it's going to penetrate quite the same way that that film did. But it is really good. It is really you good. Know? And I'm not a horror movie guy or I'm trying to be better about that. This is one of my 2018 resolutions. Um, <laughs> but well, because there's so much artful horror now. So it's kind of stuff that I have to see between this and Hereditary and Get Out last year. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a lot of jump scares. Um, the direction is so like inventive and like all these big set pieces so they're basically being chased by monsters who will come eat you if you make any kind of loud noise or even moderately you know audible noise um so so it's kind of a silent movie for a lot of the stretch uh, for a lot of it and um but yeah it's fun i mean i watched through my fingers but like it was you know i, that think I would be... call a, fi- a movie a movie that yeah. i enjoyed versus a film <laughs> we can't buy into spielberg's language don't let him win this battle is it a spiritual us. sequel to mother <laughs> <laughs> Everything is a spiritual sequel to Mother. It's a spiritual sequel to Mama. There are a few like new because this isn't John Krasinski's first movie. I think it's his third, at least his second. There was it's his third, yeah. It's mm-hmm. third, yeah. But there are some like I don't know. I would call them like rookie director moves. Like there's this one part. You need, whenever you do a post-apocalyptic movie, you have to establish the rules of that movie, or else people don't understand. And there's a way in which it's really effectively done in the beginning with this like silent sequence. Yeah. And then there's a part where a camera just pans around some like whiteboards where like rules of the world are written, and you're like, okay, uh, that's. I think he, <laughs> he's literally he's literally written in all caps creatures. Yeah. I think that's one. Of, it's like okay, we we. It's we like it. creatures. They are. Attracted to noise. What kills them? We don't know. We need to figure it out. Like written on the whiteboard. I was like, okay. But um, the jump scares are good. There's a there's a set piece with a like corn silo that I yeah. would hold up against. Yeah, like any that's other a spiritual sequel to the dressmaker. If yes. anyone saw that yes. movie, good coincidence because best corn silo is a new uh, is a new category at the Oscars yes. next year. Yeah. Well, yeah. Krasinski has it all locked mm-hmm. up. Then. Yeah, <laughs> it, people have been pushing the Academy to do that <laughs> to make that change for a long while. It's interesting because one of the actresses in the film, Millicent Simmons, who plays one of their kids, uh, she's deaf herself, and she was also recently. In um, Wonderstruck, the Todd Haynes movie, and the way that her deafness f- factors into the story, it doesn't feel gimmicky. It feels organic to it, you know. So I think that's that's an interesting, um, you know, sort of extra value to the movie. Um, and and oh, and also Emily Blunt should be in every movie ever made. She's amazing. She's amazing. Yeah, it's true. 
I feel like I say this after every single Emily Blunt movie I see. It's like, she's amazing. Why can't she be in more stuff? I mean, I guess she's got Mary Poppins coming, which is like the truest star vehicle she's ever had. So hopefully that winds up coming true. This made me long for um, the Edge of Tomorrow sequel that she allegedly had to scupper to do like Mary Poppins or something like that because or or is still going to do because David Fear of Rolling Stone, I ran into him on the street at South by after the movie and he's like, it goes from alien to aliens, uh, The Quiet Place. I was like, it does. And she's just like, she's so very fearsome in the end of that movie and in a way that uh, just made me want more Emily Blunt action which is so funny because it's not at all what we thought of Emily Blunt sort of when she first came on the scene and she can do anything but I was like but also Emily Blunt action please yeah Sicario right yeah I mean yeah yeah. Yeah. like revelatory amazing I I still think about her arms in Edge of Tomorrow like all the time every time I get near a weight I think about (laughs) you could have those pythons Katie if you just try I just never really wanted them just one one other question to link it to Get Out which I think we've all agreed like isn't the best comparison but it does feel like after Get Out and the way that it launched Jordan Peele's career that horror is becoming this vehicle for not just actors but a lot of people to kind of prove what they can do so it does feel to me like regardless of how A Quiet Place does at the box office or you know the Oscar attention it may or may not get it does feel like it's going to launch John Krasinski in an interesting way uh, and makes him an interesting filmmaker to watch which I don't think many people would have necessarily assumed based, based on his other two films well yeah I'd, I haven't seen um, conversations with Hideous Men, but I have seen The Hollers, and oh boy, that is like classic Sundance stinker, you know, quirky family, homecoming kind of thing. And so then to have his third film be this like really, I mean, whiteboards with creatures written on it aside, this really like accomplished, confident, you know, um, film. Like I think it's exciting, and I think it's going to kind of re rebrand him almost as kind of like a thriller director, which I think he could do interesting things in. And he's going to be Jack Ryan on Amazon soon, so he's. Yeah, but if you want to make a movie as opposed to mm-hmm. a Film. streaming television <laughs> oh. show, uh, in other words, if you want to make a movie people actually go to, and you don't have a hundred million dollars, like horror is probably your best bet these days, yeah. right? Because people actually will go for the fun of sitting in a theater while everybody screams. Right. And people want horror to be something new. They don't expect it to be intellectual property they're already familiar with, unlike basically every other movie. Yes. And it doesn't really cost that much. It's just about yeah. it's just about shooting it well and having a great script and some creepy stuff that they right. The creatures look pretty good in this movie, actually. They're done by ILM. So there is some good CG in the movie, but for the most part you're right, like the whole point is you don't show the creatures. So for the most part you're just like wandering around a farmhouse, you right. know, like reacting to noises or whatever. Yeah, and that's not that expensive, right? right? And and yeah, you just have to have a good editor, a good score. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also think that the the lower cost of horror movies is sort of integral to it because it forces you to be more inventive, I think, mm-hmm. and like kind of like, yeah, it's how you don't show something. I think that like if Krasinski wants to make four more horror movies after this, I think he'll, you know, they'll give it to him because I think the movie will do well and I, I'll be eager to see them. And Emily Blunt should be in all of them at the end. Yeah. And then they can hang out as a family while they film. Right? It is kind of living the dream. So spring isn't just the time for horror movies and blockbusters. It's also kind of a, a weird spot for movies that, kind of on paper seemed like they could be really awardsy and might be fall releases and then kind of mysteriously come into theaters in the spring, which is the case with Chappaquiddick, which uh, Mike, you and I were on the red carpet for it at Toronto last year. We talked to the stars and saw it. Um, it's out this week. It's got uh, Jason Clark playing Ted Kennedy and kind of the story of what happened at Chappaquiddick that kind of uh, briefly derailed his political career, though he continued to have one for a long time. Um, and it's funny because the consensus around this movie, and I think in Toronto too, was that it was pretty good. So do any of us have a good working theory on on uh, why it's coming out now in the spot where it can be respected, but not necessarily an awards thing? I really don't know. And, you know, it reminds me of last year, The Lost City of Z, which um, mm. got pretty good reviews out of the New York Film Festival the previous fall. It was a fall. centerpiece at the New York Film Festival. Yeah. I mean, it had a big, splashy then, debut. 
And then Amazon just dumped it in, in, in April. That movie didn't get nominated for anything, and it really deserved it because it's a great movie. I don't think that Chappaquiddick is as good as, as uh, Lost to Z, certainly, but, but it's interesting, and it's really well acted. I think Jason Clark, I mean, you know, in a quiet, let's say it's a quiet best actor year, like he would definitely be a contender if the movie didn't come out in April, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because Byron Allen, remember, it, yeah. it, it bought this movie for like $20 million out of Toronto and really kind of made a splash by doing that. We assigned a piece about him uh, that Rebecca Keegan wrote for our site, and um, and I, li- <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that it's not true, but I like that he's trying to do a little um, kind of guerrilla marketing by telling people that powerful people tried to get him to stop, fr- uh. Uh, not let him release the movie, and it probably is true because the Kennedy. That's a Harvey Weinstein tactic. That right the there. movie, it's a, it's the a little Harveyish. I think Byron Allen has some has some Harveyish uh, in, in only in the publicity side of things. For all I know. Um, instincts but anyway um but maybe he thought that this could be like could be his chance to kind of stand out from the crowd um i don't know i mean at at a time when a lot of people just finished watching the crown a month or two ago maybe it felt like something else that would fit in pre-midterms i don't know it does seem like it would have been better later and closer to midterms closer to a lot of other stuff. It's a strange decision. Yeah, like yeah, we ha- we're in a political year. You know, I mean, everything's political now. But like, um, right. And and I was looking at the you know the calendar. I mean, I wasn't on the episode where we, where we predicted for for the Oscars next year. But like, it's kind of a soft year right now. It's look. I mean, there, there'll be like a like a ladybird will emerge. You know, out of the yeah. out of the blue. But but like, yeah, I feel like it could have fit in there somewhere in the fall. I guess like, on the other hand, if it was in last year's Toronto, what were they going to do? Release it in December? I mean, right. You know, they That's weren't, weren't going to be able to use Toronto for. It, yeah, I don't know. I guess it, it's it's a funny thing. Maybe the Kennedys paid him fifty million dollars to release it now, so it would be buried. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Bury yeah. it in April. <laughs> he has fifty thousand dollars to release it in April. Okay, the only reason I wanted us to talk about Chappaquiddick <laughs> was that so Mike could do his impression. <laughs> so should we tell people to go see Chappaquiddick? The movies the Kennedys don't want you to see. Yeah, oh, I I liked it. I thought it was good. It's a little slow, but I mean the story is just bananas. I don't yeah. think people really understand this story. Yeah, and I think it plays well with the the, the moral struggle of it. You know, like he's not entirely a villain, but he's certainly right. not a good guy. And 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 trying to grapple with what we knew Ted Kennedy to become in the Senate, like he really was a valuable, you know, hardworking, like you know, supporter of progressive, you know, democratic politics, and yet this did this terrible thing like kind of toward the start of his career so I think the movie is is good about not letting him off the hook and not letting us off the hook you know yeah it's not the most um sort of aggressively conspiratorial nightmarish version of events it's mm-hmm. like a fairly down the middle like Teddy was kind of a hot mess who drank too much and was definitely in a situation he shouldn't have been in but like not a murderer yeah but but what what it comes where it comes down spoiler alert I'm telling you spoiler alert right now for the history of Chappaquiddick just that no because what the movie sort of lands on is this kind of godfatherish like you know what I'm actually not going to apologize I'm going to move forward and embrace my destiny and that's that's what's interesting about the film as a kind of a moral thing yeah yeah. It's um I know that there was a joke around the marketing of it earlier this or last month because I think they said something like based on a true story or this actually happened or something like that and a bunch of people like older not that old but like older people were like it's so sad that like there is probably a whole generation of people who've never heard the word chapaquitic don't know like what the scandal is at all and um so they should see it 
for yeah. the information. Chappaquiddick was definitely the part of my U.S. history class where we were kind of running out of room in the rest of the year and we really like scanned past it quickly. So, I mean, I'm older than a lot of the people who'd remember it. That's because of liberal um, education. I thought it was, board, board I thought it was because the Kennedys paid her teachers $50 million paid, to... Paid my South Carolina public school teachers to keep it from me. By the way, this would have been like a Tuesday afternoon scandal in the Trump administration. <laughs> yeah. They were like, Chappaquiddick, when was that? Last week? I can't remember. I don't know. We're on to the porn star now. Yeah, Fine. yeah I, I, I was thinking about that watching the movie, like, about what would happen if, like, a Democratic senator now, like, rolled a car into a pond and, you know, like, I feel like, I, I don't know what would happen. I, I shouldn't crazy. minimize because it's actually, it is quite intense, but, like, it's not, it's 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 less shocking than some stuff that happens these days. Well, it's actually really interesting. Mike, you and I saw it at Toronto, which was just a couple weeks before the first Harvey Weinstein story broke and, you know, ushered in the Me Too movement. And it makes me wonder what it would be like seeing it now where you've got these women who were integral to the campaign and were called the Boiler Room Girls. And uh, Mary Jo Kopechny, who was killed in the car accident, is played by Kate Mara, uh, was one of them. And the movie kind of tries to do its best to lift them up into their proper historical place. But it does feel like watching it now, thinking about women in the workplace, it might still feel a little behind the time somehow, even though it was made last year. That's a good point. And and also, I mean, I, it does gloss the Me Too aspect of the whole thing where, where again, spoiler alert, like he should not be drinking and hanging out in his car at 2 a.m. with like a female aide. But yeah. he's yeah. not he's not chasing her around the table like like he perfectly well might have been doing in actual reality. Like this is this is still a sort of noble version of like. Ted Kennedy, right. you know, liberal hero who made a horrendous mistake. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I do think that the that the alt right version cuckacquitic will be very <laughs> interesting. Uh, as I threatened to you off uh, off air, I, I definitely have to just say just so it was worth it that I saw the film Breathe on the airplane out here. <laughs> Speaking of Toronto movies, yeah, <laughs> with Andrew Garfield and um, Claire Foy, and directed by Andy Serkis, and that is like if I've ever seen one, a straight down the middle, like in another in another time, a straight down the middle, give me an Oscar for this movie. Oh, right? fully, yeah. And like it just goes to what we were talking about all through the Oscar season, which is just like this Academy is not interested in that anymore. I mean, it, it was like it was capably directed Andrew Garfield did a, I thought a great job mm-hmm. uh, you know Claire Foy great and everything that she does and it was just like nobody talked about it yeah I was watching Unsane with Claire Foy uh, last week or two weeks ago and I was like oh this is so fun seeing her in a movie and then I was like Richard you have seen her in a movie it was called <laughs> Breathe you went to the premiere in Toronto <laughs> like I had completely forgotten about it yeah <laughs> But yeah, if it had come out 20 years ago, yeah. it would have been a much different story. Exactly. Yeah. Eddie Redmayne has an Oscar for doing something very similar. So, you know. Yeah, but everyone knows who Stephen Hawking is. This guy was less, you <laughs> know, true. famous. I Glamorous. Guess. Garfield needs to start traveling with that school bus full of children again. I think that would really oh, help right. his, <laughs> his chances of getting Once noticed. he lost those kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I hope those kids all get to see Angels in America. Like, he's just helping them see that one next. Right? They're probably old enough now. I'm sure. To, yeah, that's uh, true. understand the themes. <laughs> Andrew Garfield and Jake Gyllenhaal are my two, like, I need them to have Oscars and quite soon people. Well, Stronger was another movie I about know. a man facing a disability that was at Toronto that also, I think more people talked about that than Breathe, but it also just, like, fell off the map. Yeah, that had Toronto buzz. But, like, on the flip side, and I said this before, all these South by movies, these like big headliners that South by booked this year are like, you know, between A Quiet Place, Ready Player One and Blockers. Like uh, they did a good job programming their headliners this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not always the case. Sometimes they program headliners that don't go anywhere. But this year was like a really, really good year for them. So, yeah. And they've, yeah, and they've screened. I mean, Get Out, Boyhood, they, they've they had they didn't premiere those movies, but they yeah. have screened them. And those are movies that won Oscars. So, like, I feel like what whereas South by's. um 
Focus is more on the sort of, you know, commercial. Movies, not films. Movies, not films. Like, maybe that will shift a little bit, you know, the more the, the festival kind of becomes a serious film festival. So wait, going back to all the movies we've discussed, do any of them have any chance of any Oscar nominations? I feel like um, Jason Clark, probably not. I mean, from April, that's gonna. There's not gonna, there's yeah, gonna be. It's it, gonna be too busy. It'll be busy now. But I think. I mean, I mean, Ready Player One does have some pretty spectacular special effects. There is a sequence uh, involving a beloved horror movie. I won't spoil anything. That is really well done. I mean, I just kind of ingenious the way that they blend sort of practical things and special effects and computer stuff together. So I think that could be in the, in the mix, but you know, it depends on, I think how well it does. Yeah. And I would say similarly for a quiet place, like if a quiet place did really, really well, I could see some of those ILM practical effects or digital effects yeah. getting in there maybe. Or, or um, sound editing. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Sound editing for a quiet place. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Joanna, you mentioned blockers briefly, and I feel like we should point anyone who didn't hear the South by Southwest episode we did a few weeks ago. We kind of talked about that in, a, in some detail that you saw it there and loved it. It's also out this week. Um, I'm guessing also not something we're going to peg for Oscar contention, but definitely something people should see, right? Well, did they introduce the butt chugging category this year? If so, speaking, along with best porn style. <laughs> no, uh, I don't think so. No, but it's really fun. Richard, you were not as... No, I really liked it. Okay. Um, I didn't love some of the John Cena stuff. I didn't like some of the crasser kind of sex jokes because I think they were just they were like not as elevated and sort of forward thinking as a lot of the other humor and characterization was. I thought that I think it was kind of thrown in like for the boys in this way that I was obnoxious. But like Leslie Mann is fantastic. Ike Barinholtz really clicked for me in that and that and the kids, the girls, I don't know their names. I'm sorry, but they're they're so great. One of them is Gideon Adlin, Pamela Adlin's daughter. She is oh, great. Right. And yeah. Susan Sarandon's son is in that movie, too. I actually think it's a reverse. That film was actually originally called... Uh, I talked to Kay Cannon about this, the director. And that film was originally called Cherries. It was Ugh. about three dads. And it was vi- and written by dudes. And then rewritten by dudes and rewritten by dudes. And then Kay Cannon got it. And like she doesn't have an official screenwriting credit on it, but she kind of told me that... She rewrote most of it. And right. um, and so all I think all so all of that stuff that you're objecting to, the gross out humor, I think that's left over from this original thing she got. <laughs> and she put in all the like really emotional. Oh, so I got like, it wrong. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. the reverse of that. She she like hid, I think, a really progressive and interesting uh, and emotional film inside a gross out uh, co- fratty comedy. And it's not t- there's only a couple gross outy things. But I know but, exactly yeah. what you're talking about. And it is yeah. gross. This kind of reminds me of the conversation that was on Bridesmaids when it came out, which also premiered at South by. And there was the whole the whole bathroom scene that a lot of people were really divided on. And I feel like eventually became kind of accepted as part of the movie. But I wonder if this is just always going to be the template for female comedies. That there's going to be just like something a little gross that no one can quite decide if they there's like the, or not. There's the girls trip moment. That's like gross. Yeah. 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 Like, mm. yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't mind the gross that stuff. It's more that like it needs to fit in the broader texture of the of the movie and i think that in 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 bridesmaids that scene works because the movie is that whole movie is a kind of like antic and up yeah. whereas in blockers it's 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 operating on a kind of like mellower register for most of the movie and then all of a sudden this kind of like yeah thing happens so um yeah i think if it's just a little bit better considered i really don't, i don't mind and i don't mind you know comedies about like fratty boy like, i love super bad or whatever but like it just has to be done right I think. i'm bobby finger and i'm Lindsay weber do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say who the heck is that our podcast who weekly is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't think of us as your cheat code to people magazine your glossary for hollywood a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. 
For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Mike, you brought up Girls Trip, which is a great segue into the last thing we want to talk about, which is the last OG jumping over to television. It's the TBS series with Tracy Morgan that premiered uh, this week, and it also co-stars Tiffany Haddish, which I think is the first thing she's done since Girls Trip, right? Yeah, you know, other than like wonderful talk show appearances. And, and like, the, yeah, showing up at award shows. And I saw <laughs> yeah. her do a panel for it at TCA last August. So like right after Girls Trip. Girls Trip was July, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she was like right like cresting or whatever. Yeah. And like, it, I felt kind of bad because the panel, like Tracy Morgan was on the panel and no one had questions for him. They just wanted to talk to Tiffany. And um, and even then, she didn't really, like I think, know what was happening to her. But it was beginning to happen to her. I mean, she was cast on that show, obviously, before um, all of this stuff. Right. So it's not like her follow-up project. It's like her project that she already did that has just finally come I out. I think she was me. cast off Carmichael's show. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is so good. Um, but yeah, I was a little bit un- unsure what to think about it. I mean, it's co-created by Jordan Peele, so like, yay for that. You know, and Tracy Morgan is great, um, always funny, but like, I wasn't really sure what a show with him at the center was going to look like. For some reason, I thought it was going to be multicam, and then, but anyway, I watched it. I watched those six episodes they sent, and I think it's really great. I think they, I think it's like funny and heartwarming, and Tracy Morgan is a really good actor when he gets to kind of just like center himself and like like be more natural and kind of more human. And Tiffany Haddish is great, and Cedric the Entertainer is great. It looks beautiful. It's like all shot in like Bed Stuy and Brooklyn, and um, yeah, I don't know. I was really, I was really. That's happy. a lot of electrifying talent. I mean, I. Yeah. Yeah. Tracy's been through a lot. I think I'm so happy that he's like back in action. Yeah. And he, he was always like one of my favorite when even when he was on SNL, it's like, you know, Brian Fellows. I mean, yes. that's just like Safari Planet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, that's that's exciting to just even just to get the two of them. I also want Tiffany to do like a, a, re, a whole film adaptation of the Beyonce biting thing. <laughs> oh god. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that should be yeah. like a six part Netflix docuseries <laughs> right. or something. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, Richard, the surprise you were talking about, I think, shows up in the very beginning of the pilot, which is all that I've watched is, you know, available on the FX app, where it kind of starts off in this very, like, you know, quiet domestic scene where he's cooking food and they're watching the original American Idol finale. And it's this nice scene between him and Tiffany Haddish. And you get this growing sense of dread because it's showing how he got um, busted by the cops and sent to jail for 15 years. Uh, And then it kind of veers right into a very topical Brooklyn comedy where he comes back and he's in, I think he's in Gowanus uh, and sees like all the hipsters with their strollers who were in his old neighborhood. Um, but it's a re- I thought the tones balanced really nicely and you kind of get Tiffany Haddish back again where she's got this kind of high flying job um, and she's kind of code switching where she's talking to her very fancy um, white donors and then Tracy Morgan there's a, there's a lot going on like all pilots are kind of busy but everything that it was dropping in there felt really promising like it was going to go a lot of different places yeah and I think another nice thing about you know uh, we've seen comedy about sort of like make you know poking fun at like white brooklyn gentrification as it yeah. you know well it should be po- you know made fun of but and some of that comedy leans a little too heavy on obvious jokes but i think that this one does it more subtly and as the season goes on um 
Tracy, Tracy's character called Trey, like he he rejects it, but also like kind of finds a way to fold it into like his understanding of the world and, and, and his life, which like I think is an, an interesting, uh, you know, sort of approach that he's not constantly resisting it at all at every point. And, you know, the show isn't constantly hammering away at it. So, um, you know, as, as a sort of societal issue that, you know, is very um, difficult to kind of talk about and unpack um i think this show with its very light hand does a, does a good job you pretty much never see it from the perspective of the people who used to live or do live in the housing projects that are across the street from hipster restaurants called kelsey's regret like that's a very real thing that's happening and you usually see it from like self-flagellating white people not the people who were there first right exactly yeah and and um yeah so i i, I like that and um you know and haddish um gets to be, have some dramatic moments as does morgan uh there's one episode in particular that's just it's like moving in fact uh the, a speech that tracy morgan gives so yeah i think everyone should watch it um i don't know i mean it's hard to say a show that you know is premiering in in early april you know it's it's certainly premiering before the Emmy cutoff, but I wonder if it'll have time to get momentum. I think TBS is not usually a place that we think of for Emmy stuff, though they got a nomination for Sam B last year. So maybe this is the beginning, this could be the beginning of TBS as a platform for um, Emmy consideration where it hasn't quite really been Yeah, I mean, if the Oscars were desperate to get Tiffany Haddish involved any way possible, like, won't the Emmys be? Should be. Even twice as much? I would think so. Right? Yeah. And on the TBS front, like, I hope, I would hope that the, if the last OG gets the praise and sort of awards the attention, I you know that I hope it gets. Hopefully, some of that light would also shine on Search Party, which is a great, weird kind of another Brooklyn-y comedy show from a very different perspective, from the gentrifier's perspective, essentially. Um, but that's really dark and interesting, and kind of a thriller as well as being a comedy. So yeah, TBS is putting out good stuff. I just hope people pay attention. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks as always for listening. Uh, please find us on Apple Podcasts, where and you can leave us a rating and review. We really appreciate it. We're all at Vanity. Fair.com every day. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men, and we're on Twitter on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard? Rylaws. And Joanna? Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this year's award for the best overdue capsule review of Seth MacFarlane's Oscar hosting gig goes to newly installed chief critic Richard Lawson. I don't mind, you know, comedies about like fratty boys. I love Super Bad or whatever. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. From P-